You, you will not hear me say anything negative about VAR. <laughs> I mean, justice is everything. To have a right, to have a correct decision, I can just repeat that. And, and we have so many more correct decisions thanks to VAR. And we need to recognize that. John Infantino has been defending technology in football and why the handball law is changing yet again. But before the IFAB meeting, just what was the FIFA president up to traveling around Africa amid the election campaign to run football on the continent? We'll explore those issues and the rest of the week's sports news on this Sport Unlocked. Hello and welcome to the podcast distilling the best of the week's sports news. I'm Rob Harris and usually this is the time of year I'd be at an IFAB meeting with Martin Ziegler hovering around a hotel talking to football's power brokers and lawmakers. Instead, we're not even in the same place. So it's a virtual welcome back to the pod to Martin. And to kick things off, what is it you like about an IFAB trip normally? IFAB is one of, always one of my favourite annual um, trips and because you get really good access to people from FIFA, from the British associations, um, everyone's a bit more relaxed. You can have a, a, a much more meaningful conversation rather than at one of these huge congresses where everyone's really busy. So, um, yeah, it's a shame to have to do it virtually, but there we are. Yeah, and a year ago we were in Hollywood, Northern Ireland, and with us was Tarek back there. Welcome back to the pod. Happy to be with you. I remember that. What a what a great kind of normal trip that was. Probably the last one any of us can remember. One of the last. Um, I remember us having a, a a dinner with like twelve people on a very tiny table. That seems like a, an alien world now, doesn't it? All sort of elbows pressed up against each other, trying to trying to have a meal. Um, that was normal. Um, and now let's hope we're going to get back to something like that soon, eh? Yeah, because ultimately it does help us understand the laws of the game and pass them on. But for the first time, the IFAB meeting was held virtually this year and we'll be bringing you some of the key decisions later on from Gianni Fantino, from Pierluigi Colina, who's the head of refereeing, and from various others. But first, a rundown of some of the week's key sports news headlines and starting with 2030 World Cup bidding, which is back in the headlines this week after Boris Johnson, for perhaps political reasons thrown his renewed support behind it, hasn't he? Yes, so the uh, the Prime Minister has announced uh, £2.8 million to launch a bid for a joint British and Irish bid for 2030. Um, interestingly, actually, Boris Johnson was quite heavily involved in, in the last disastrous England bid for 2018. And it, it was actually him who first um, confirmed the news before the official announcement that England had, be, had lost the bid to Russia and, and done so in humiliating circumstances. So... He clearly hasn't been damaged by that um, if he thinks he wants to go again, because I think there's a there's a long way to go before they can even dream of success. Yeah, the three of us were all there in Zurich in December 2010 when Boris Johnson was amongst that British delegation with Prince William, David Cameron, David Beckham. That did flop so spectacularly with just two of the ETSCO votes. And now, Tarek, it's another not necessarily smooth path if they want to win the World Cup, is it? Yeah, no, it feels like uh, yesterday. It was amazing that was uh, 10 years or 11 years ago now, but it, it, it feels so so um, current because of the emotions of, of that day, doesn't it? I remember um, actually walking walking into that auditorium and I, I, I remember seeing um, Gary Lineker, who was obviously very friendly, to his nice guy. Like, Gary, have we, have we done it? Because do you remember, we were in that room <laughs> Still thinking, I say we, being an Englishman, have we have we won this this World Cup bid? Because we we 
still had no idea. I mean, I know we had our suspicions, and after the event, we can all say, "Well, of course we were going to lose. It was all all rigged. The bid was crap, and everything else." But there was there was hope until the envelope opens. And I just remember Gary Lineker turning around and shaking his head like he did to Bobby Robson when Gaza got his, his booking in the, in the World Cup in Zambia '90. It was it's quite demoralising. And then yeah, then you obviously see the envelopes open. Um, yeah, yeah, here we go again. But it's it's still some way off. I don't think FIFA have said when when the um, when the bids are due to be in. And I think there's going to be quite a lot of competition, right, Martin? You've got China and then the the centennial bid from South America as well. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, I think the the, the first hurdle that um, the British Irish bid will have to overcome is is becoming UEFA's sole bidder, um, which means they're going to have to beat Spain and Portugal in a, in a UEFA vote if it comes to that. Um, I mean, I, I spoke about this to Alexander Sheffrin, the UEFA president last year. He's pretty confident they can fend off um, FIFA changing the rules to allow China in. But when if it comes to a popularity contest between the Spanish and the Portuguese and the British and the Irish, that's a really, really big hurdle to get over because there's still a lot of unpopular feeling towards towards the English in particular. I mean, the Eastern Europeans don't like the English because they think we um, unfairly categorise them as racists. Obviously, Russia would, would um, uh, has historical reasons not to support us. I mean, there's probably a Scandinavian um, base of support for, for a British bid. Before you can even start thinking about the South American bid, the Chinese bid, you've got to somehow get past that that first big problem for the for the British and Irish. And there's always this sense of English exceptionalism, English arrogance even. Boris Johnson probably not helping things with his use of coming home, which probably took away from the fact one of the key advantages to the bid if it goes ahead is having Ireland on board in particular. Yet Boris Johnson did characterise it as a very English, Anglo-centric, we want to bring football home. Do you think that, that the actual announcement of the bid has anything to do with football or bidding for the World Cup? Or is this more to do with domestic politics, given you know what's happening in the country right now? Do you think it's more a, a rallying cry for, for the nation rather than a real concerted bid for the World Cup? Well, I think it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money to, to, to if it's just a sort of PR tactic, isn't it? I mean, and also you're setting yourself up for a fall if that's the case if 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 you're just doing it to try and sort of um you know think oh well we'll I'll we'll talk about football to try and um impress the sort of the the, the people from that part of, of the britain who like their sport um so I think it has to be more than that but at the same time um I think that it'd be, I'm slightly surprised that they ha he hasn't had more of a sort of message about the difficulties they have to encounter. I mean, Greg Clark um, would have been the, the main person to lead the bid. He, he sort of had to resign from the FA in, in, under a cloud, but he had built a lot of um, relationships in Europe and he was a FIFA vice president. Uh, John Delaney, who again left the Irish Football Association under, under an even bigger cloud, he had he was a remarkable schmoozer um, and schemer who I think he, when he got elected to UEFA with 48 out of 55 votes. So he was really popular as well. So everything now looks like it's going to fall on the shoulders of David Gill, which is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty big ask for him. 
You wouldn't describe you wouldn't describe David Gill as the like smoothest um, operator in a, in a in a room where you're uh, currying uh, favour and votes, etc. He's he's very talented in 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 many ways, but you wouldn't say he'd be the life and soul of of a party. You know, obviously John Delaney famously used um, you know Irish expenses to throw these spectacular parties and invite these people from UEFA to to Ireland, and they seem to. They seem to enjoy going over there. I can't imagine, um, you know, David Gill playing a kind of ringmaster role. You'll need other characters around him, uh, Rob. Well, he's got the respect, certainly, across football, although he is the UEFA treasurer, which means he holds the keys to the purse strings for so many who want uh, some of the UEFA cash across the continent. But one of the other things, the fact, David Gill is one of five UEFA vice presidents, two out of the five are from Portugal and Spain, Fernando Gomez and uh, Luis Rubiales, which means it gives an advantage to the Spain-Portugal bid straight away in terms of their status at UEFA, you've got to think. So this will be the second bid, right, where you have the entire FIFA caucus, the 211 members voting. Does that, does that change anything? Because obviously the dynamic in 18 and, for 18 and 2022 was the, um, well, in the end, 22 FIFA Exco members who voted. Does that change anything? I think it probably to, to slightly changes it. Um, it. Maybe it sort of gives a European bid of, um, a sort of a decent shot. But mind you, then the Europeans had a lot of FIFA members, so it's. It, 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 I'm not sure it does change anything very much. But I suppose it's a bit more difficult for um, for FIFA to manipulate things, the FIFA leadership to manipulate things their way, because there's much there's a much greater number of people you're going to have to persuade and get on board um so we we had the, the usa one the last time didn't they and um then we um fairly fairly convincingly didn't they against morocco and uh we have yet to hear actually whether morocco or an african nation is gonna is gonna bid i think there's i think they've probably got another year to decide and then the bid the bid will actually take place in 2024 and one of the other little things floated around is actually whether or not they could do a typical sort of FIFA type solution. Still have Uruguay celebrate 100 years since the first World Cup by hosting something like the first game and then shifting the rest of the tournament to somewhere else like Spain and Portugal. Yeah, Are we all... buying that or not? Yeah, no, yeah, well, it's all possible. Gianni Infantino is a man who can't stop trying to invent something new. So I wouldn't put it past him to try and, and do that. And to be honest, it's not the worst idea, is it? Why, why not? You know, um, it is the centenary of the first World Cup. It was hosted in Uruguay. Imagine the opening um, a tournament in, in Montevideo um, and, then, and then moving it elsewhere. It's, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Obviously, this is an expanded 48-team World Cup as well. And it would give countries like Uruguay um, the opportunity to host a World Cup game without having to spend you know, billions of uh, dollars on infrastructure that they probably won't need after the event. Uh, I bet you that that option surfaces sooner or later. Um, you could have the opening. You could have the opening match of the tournament in Uruguay. You could even have a group based in Uruguay for the group matches, couldn't you? And then uh, so they yeah. have whatever a few games, and then um, and then sh and then everything shifts back to Europe. Um, there's no reason why you couldn't do that, and I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure that will be raised as a sort of solution. Well, so much about the decision world not to pursue a World Cup bid will come down to trust in FIFA and you'll probably end up hearing many within British football in particular 
desperate to sort of accept that FIFA has changed, has reformed, is in a new era of trust. But you know, we do see constantly questions about some of the movements of Gianni Infantino, some of the power plays he's involved with, and in particular the latest uh, in his movements across Africa ahead of the CAF elections. And I'm delighted to welcome to Sport Unlocked from Lagos, Nigeria, the African football journalist and governance watcher, Asasu Abayawana. Asasu, welcome to the pod. What have you been making of Gianni Infantino's travels and what he's been up to involving this African election? Well, Gianni Infantino has been on what I will call uh, a trans-African safari, <laughs> for want of a better expression. Um, we have never had a FIFA president interfere in confederation elections as we have seen at the moment. This never happened during the time of Havelange when he was a FIFA president for 24 years and it never happened when Blatter was a president for 17 years. I mean, the only time these people made interventions in Africa were concerning their own elections, but certainly not the elections of the confederations and um, yes there is a, a perception that uh, it's only in Africa that these type of things can be done which is a very unfortunate situation because it doesn't speak well to the independent mindedness and integrity of the FA presidents who should pick a CAF president solely on their own ideas and vision of who should lead the continent and not based on what is being told to them from the outside. And as it stands, the person who has been serving as CAF president, Ahmed Ahmed, can't gain another term because he's banned by FIFA for five years for financial misconduct. It was Ahmed who Infantino helped put in power four years ago and now he has been trying to appeal against his ban at the court of arbitration for sport we await that outcome and in terms of who could be getting the presidency now well there were four candidates challenging Ahmad in the election but we've seen them drop out and now it looks like it seems while Infantino has been traveling around Africa meeting heads of state along the way he has been promoting his preferred candidate, the South African billionaire, Patrice Masepe. So, Asasu, what do we know about him? Uh, some of you would know he is the owner of Mamelodi Sundowns, a previous winner of the African Champions League. Uh, he's a very successful businessman. He is the brother-in-law to the current South African president, Cyril Ramaphosa. And... Um, with his um, profile in the business world and with the achievements of his club on the African continent, a lot of people feel that his presence in CAF could help to stabilize its management and um, improve overall governance. But again, he, he has never been involved in the politics of CAF up to this moment. And that is why he, um, the candidature of uh, Augustin Senghor, who has been a CAF executive member for the last two years and the president of the Senegalese Football Federation for the last 13, 
attracted uh, favorable support from many across the length and breadth of the continent. But the problem is that uh, it is one thing to get or to seek support, and it's another thing to get it when there are so many forces involved in what is clearly becoming a, a, a selective process rather than an elective process. Um, the candidates recently met in Rabat, uh, supposedly at the invitation of the president of the Moroccan Football Federation, Fauzi Lecture, and at this conversation, it was uh, discussed that uh, Mosepe should become CAF president while Augustin Songo becomes first vice president and Ahmed Yaya becomes second vice president. Um, at this meeting in Rabat, Jacques Anuma was offered uh, a role as an advisor of, of uh, the CAF president, which he said he would not accept and would have to go back and have a think about it. Um, from my discussion with someone very close in the Senghor camp, um, it is clear that the elections which are to take place uh, next week in, in Rabat are more or less going to be a formal formality, especially at the presidential level, which of course goes to the very root of whether there is a democratic process in CAF at the moment or whether there is one of selection. But I, I think uh, the facts on the ground clearly indicate uh, what the situation is. And uh, I think it's it's not one that all goes well for, for the future of, of CAF and, and, and African and football in general. Well, we'll be keeping an eye on the election. Sasi, thanks for joining us with your insight today. And we've also been hearing from the FIFA president himself. Gianni Fantino was asked by Tarek, actually, in the post-IFAB press conference if he had a preferred candidate in the election, and he was pretty evasive. There's no secret that CAF has been facing uh, some difficult times recently. So it is an opportunity to look forward to uh, uh, speak with everyone to try to help African football in whichever way we can. I personally spoke, for example, with all four candidates for the presidency, with many other uh, presidents uh, of, um, of association. And I can certainly confirm that there is plenty of common ground between them. And that's finally the most important uh, part of it. So as far as FIFA is concerned, we definitely look forward to work closely together with CAF as we were in the past. And Gianni Infantino was talking about trying to get more VAR across Africa. That's the last thing some people might want. But we did hear actually some progress at the IFAB meeting on offsides and particularly perhaps eradicating some of those frustrating marginal offsides. Martin, what exactly did we discover? Yeah, so this is a pretty revolutionary idea. Arsene Wenger's proposal, Wenger's law is um, I think probably the biggest shake-up in the offside law for almost 100 years, 1925. Um, what it would be is that the, um, it, there'd have to be clear daylight between the attacker and the defender. So any part of the body you can score a goal with your foot, so long as a tiny part of that is in line with the last defender, 
then you're onside. So um, it's really, it should be a significant advantage to the attacker. The only, so they're going to have trials of this in, the China, in a Chinese league and see what happens, whether it makes the game more entertaining. Will there be a ridiculous flood of goals? Will it lead to teams being ultra-defensive? Lots to lots to see what happens. Um, I think it's fascinating development. One of the other developments could be the end of those lines across the screen as it tries to figure out offside because it could all be automated soon, in some form at least, with robots determining offside. Let's hear more on that now from Pierluigi Colina. He's the head of refereeing at FIFA these days. It's a semi-automated offside is related to the time needed to make the decision. But certainly, in terms of technology, um, it will be possible that in the future we will have something more accurate uh, and it will go in the direction to spot on offside even smaller than the one we are uh, spotting today with the current technology. So it will be more accurate and ironically, we will have more marginal offside that could be detected detected by by the technology. So it's not really uh, a matter related uh, to to the technology. It's more a matter related to the spirit of football. So uh, do we want to have uh, a more attacking football? This was the answer given by, by Infantino before. Uh, if we want to explore um, a change in uh, low 11 in offside that would give uh, attackers more opportunity to, to score goals, of course, we need to go in this direction, trialing a change and see if it works. So far from eradicating those irritating marginal offsides, perhaps we could just get even more of them if the robots are working them out so precisely. I think it'll make things a lot easier. And the idea is to make, certainly in the, these days of VAR, make those decisions a lot quicker. Um, so, Ziggs, who will be producing these um, robots and how many leagues will be able to use this technology? I think there's several several technology companies that have, are, have put in pitches to FIFA and are working with them. Um, obviously, Hawkeye is one of them. They they seem to get in everywhere, don't they? Um, there's there's a few more as well. But um, I... and they're also talking about VAR light as well. They want to have VAR where it could just use fewer cameras. So a country like Northern Ireland, where obviously Patrick Nelson, one of the IFAB board members, is from, uh, could potentially have it in their leagues. Thing about VAR light, I think, and that in many ways, that's a perfect VAR system, because you you only use that for those really really um, difficult calls, so you don't have these like incredibly marginal offsides. You don't have the sort of endless replays of handballs. It's sort of it's it's a much more sort of fan friendly thing, I think. That's what it should be, but who knows? But when it happens, it might be it might be just as divisive. I'm one of those people who is kind of a bit sick and tired of VAR every week. It's been two years. Will any of these changes lead to some of this controversy kind of going away? Or is it that we're lumbered with it? Because at times when it was just the referees making the mistakes, I think people, however frustrated they got, the controversy didn't last that long. You can accept it was human error. Last two years, we're just talking about this infernal thing week after week. So will any of the changes they talked about today get rid of some of that debate well uh, yeah there was a there was a sort of a, a revision of a law that was brought in only a couple of years ago today 
um, which just to me indicates that there's been a bit too much messing around. I mean, they, FIFA and David Ellery and Kalina denied that, but I mean, so with with, with accidental handball, uh, where the ball strikes an attacker's hand accidentally, then drops to a, a teammate and he he shoots into the goal. Now that's not judged as an automatic handball. Um, it has been previously for the last two years and significantly um, for Fulham and Tottenham fans, it prevented Fulham having a uh, an equaliser against Spurs scored on Thursday night. Well, let's hear now from David Ellery, the former Premier League referee turned IFAB technical director on whether the referees and law are doing enough to prevent players being unfairly penalised for accidentally handling. Accidental handball <clears throat> normally isn't penalised. and We've made it very clear that every contact of the ball with the hand is not necessarily an offence. But equally, there are some occasions where players have extended their hands or arms away from the body with the intention and the purpose to make themselves a bigger barrier to stop the ball going past them. And if the ball then strikes them there, then they are penalised. So, but we are, with our wording, trying to make sure that the accidental handball, where, as we say in the law, the player's arm position is a consequence of or justifiable by their body movement for that situation, that apart from the attacking situation, that is not a handball offence. And Pierluigi Kalina, as the FIFA referee-in-chief, was very quick to try to reassure people and say it wasn't a snap decision on Thursday night. But, you know, it has been brewing for some time. One of the issues seems to be the fact we're changing the laws all the time is it's not just the Premier League where they have to be enforced in. It's every league all the way down to the grassroots in England. It's, it's all 211 FIFA nations. So if they keep on changing them and tweaking them every so often... That's so many referees who've got to be up to speed with every adjustment the whole time and wondering where they're even up to. We're still counting down less than 100 days now until the rescheduled European Championship and we're also counting down to UEFA's decision on just what the hosting will still look like at the tournament across Europe. 12 cities in 12 countries was the original plan, but this week we discovered that Bilbao, Dublin and Glasgow could all be at risk of having their game stripped from them because they can't offer the guarantees on the return of fans to stadiums. What prospect do we reckon that any of them will be stripped to them? And is it right they lose them because they can't at this stage say if fans will be there in June? Well, I mean, it, it's certainly a, um, a, a warning shot, isn't it, to sort of fall in line or, or risk it. I mean, it'd be quite ironic if the SNP government in Scotland's hardline attitude meant that the first time they ever had a major international football tournament um, matches, um, they, they would end up losing them to England because they're refusing to allow fans back in any, any significant numbers, whereas across the, uh, the border you're going to have 10,000 minimum. So I think it is a big risk for them. And it's, uh, I wouldn't be surprised, though, if the Scottish government um, dials down its opposition to having fans back in numbers and bites the bullet and lets more in not helped currently by the political uncertainty over the future Nicola Sturgeon and also what confused might what might confuse some people is the fact that England and Scotland aren't united in terms of their approach to reopening even though it's part of the UK and um, Tarek 
what do you think the best solution is for the Euros? What do you think will happen? How you know from this week? What does it tell us about UEFA's approach? I think it will be. I think the idea it's going to be in one country is 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 really far fetched now. I think we're seeing a direction of travel. I think there's going to be more games in England. Um, England will take up the slack from from the the, the cities that you mentioned uh, that could have them stripped. I think there is a big possibility that all three of them could be stripped and then those games will be in England. But I, I just don't think that there's going to be a tournament in one country. I think um, UEFA want this tournament in, in, in different cities. Um, there is politics, football politics at play and bigger politics as well. Um, yeah, so I, I think we're going to see, um, you know, an eight, nine city Euro with more games in England. And I think we're going to see to varying degrees, fans in stadiums. Um, don't forget um, one thing, I guess the one thing that the British government at least has got right is this vaccination programme. It's going extremely well. We should give them credit for that. Um, by, the, by the time June comes round, um, there will be um, a huge swathe of the population, particularly the at-risk groups, in fact, all the at-risk groups would have been offered uh, the vaccinations. And I think we're going to see hopefully a different environment, a different country at that point. And of course, it's going to be warmer. Um, and we saw last time with the virus, wh wh when it reached the summer months, the, the um, incidence of spread was markedly reduced. So yeah, I, I think it, the signs are, are positive for a tournament with supporters, but, but not in, in some of the cities that had put their names forward. I mean, it's quite interesting if Scotland and Ireland um, have, have the matches stripped from them. That's that's not great in terms of impressing UEFA ahead of their participation in a World Cup bid either. And in terms of where the games could go to, I heard Tottenham Stadium under consideration then for uh, political reasons to actually give some games to the north of England, perhaps in Liverpool and Manchester as well. We heard this week also from the La Liga president, Javier Tebas, who seems hopeful of having fans back in stadiums by May there potentially. That maybe could mean that if, if the Basque country government doesn't allow fans in Bilbao, maybe those games could be elsewhere in Spain. And we also heard from Javier Tebas on the crisis unfolding at Barcelona. This week, we saw the arrest of the former club president, Joseph Bartomeu, and other club officials all under investigation over the Barca Gate scandal. This is the latest controversy to hit the club. They've got more than a billion euros in debt. They're electing a new president as well. Tebas seemed hopeful that things can correct themselves with the new management in place, but just how damaging is this for Barcelona and the financial and political crisis they're in? Well, I think it's hugely damaging, but it's every week, every few days, this new kind of bombshell at Barcelona, new revelations of some sort of ugly behaviour. Um, and then you're seeing your CEO arrested, Oscar Grau, um, Bartomeu, the head of legal services was arrested. Bartomeu's personal advisor was arrested. It's just endless, um, the, the kind of shenanigans going on at Barcelona. And, you know, the image that the, this club has tried to portray over the years, some would say, you know, it, it, it never had that image to begin with. Um, but, but really, this, this kind of more than a club mythology has, has kind of been, you know, well and truly flushed down the toilet over the last few weeks. Um, and, and in terms of the, the, the candidates, you mentioned Tebas saying once it gets new management, everything will be righted. But something struck me was one of the, one of the candidates, Tony Fresher, um, 
he he said um Barcelona once he's in will be ready to buy three of the world's best players again because there's there's going to be 250 million euros cash injection coming to the club now I, I I wrote a story recently on on this money and as far as people at the club were concerned this was not earmarked for new players this 250 million euros was to pay down the crippling debt you mentioned and here he comes again we're going to come and we're going to buy Haaland, we're going to buy Mbappe, we're going to buy whoever you want, and then off we go again. It's, it's an endless circus over there. It's um, uh, Manchester United results came out this week. They're, they're six monthly results, half yearly results. And actually, to me, it sort of, once again, sort of illustrated how the the financial gap between the Premier League and the rest of Europe is is really quite significant. Because, you know, in the, in the teeth of the this incredible pandemic and losing um, hundreds of millions of pounds in the Premier League, Manchester United still managed to make a, a £33 million profit over the six months. So, I mean, compare that to, to Barcelona, Real Madrid, and that's why I think the Spanish clubs are in such a crisis. And some uncertainty in Italy as well, with the Serie A leaders into Milan, with their owners sunning ceasing operations at their Chinese club just three months after... Um, Jiangsu FC won the title. Um, so many, perhaps in Italy, were really optimistic about the influx of cash from China, thinking it would transform the club. Yes, the top of the league, but with so much uncertainty over what happens next. Absolutely. The, the, there's a remarkable story that in China, where, as you say, they won their first league title. This team was called Jiangsu Suning after the electronics retailer Suning. Uh, ended up because of one of those um, government edicts that seem to come every few months in Chinese football. Companies can no longer have their names associated with their with their team, so that became Jiangsu FC. And then now it might be absolutely nothing. Um, we're going to find out by the end of March if the reigning Chinese champions will be um, out of business and forced to shut their doors. And you mentioned Inter Milan. It's been a decade since they won the Champions League, heavily in debt. Um, you know, financial crisis there as well for the best part of um, the last five, ten years. Suning, Suning, Suning arrive um, and look like they've steadied that ship. They've got a, a fantastic um, a team at the moment. They're riding high, look like they could win Serie A, could be contenders in, in Europe again. And, you know, this, this uncertainty means it could all come apart because if the Chinese government... Uh, demand that Suning divests its footballing interests, which its owner um, said uh, openly that the focus will be on the core business. Um, that doesn't mean football, right? So you lost a Chinese team. It's hard to see them uh, persevering, certainly investing in, in Inter Milan anymore. And Inter's finances, um, because of the coronavirus, like other Italian teams, are, are in a bit of a state. I, I, it would be really sad, wouldn't it, that this team that finally appears to be back on track, could, could fall away again. Do you think the, um, I mean, obviously the, um, there's been other Chinese companies but having issues, Chinese companies involved in football having issues. Media Pro is Chinese-owned, which um, lost the, the French League One rights. Do you think there's worries for other, other football clubs owned by Chinese um, owners, for example, Wolves owned by Fosun International? Do you think there's, there's, is, there, is this part of a general 
moving away from investing in football by Chinese companies, do you think? 100%. Yes. And, and you know, Suning is the, you know, the example here, but you could say it's a distressed example. Suning famously also owned the Premier League TV rights, which they defaulted on, refused to pay, and they're in court in England with the Premier League over those. Um, you've seen a plethora of, of Chinese investors who came around the boom time in 1617 to, to European football, buying clubs all over the continent, suddenly disappearing. Uh, Czech Republic, for example, had a, a railway, Chinese railways invested there and disappeared. Um, there's talk of Southampton being up for sale, uh, which, which um, you know, I've, I've, heard, I've heard that too. There's talk of others, West Brom, etc., um, being on the market. It seems really fast, like uh, this comet appeared, um, sprayed cash all over European football and world football, and has disappeared or appears to be disappearing as fast as it appeared. And it makes you wonder what kind of partner a Chinese company or Chinese investors are for the long term. Will it make clubs think again, leagues think again, how they structure their deals? Will they maybe say, yeah, we'll do a deal with you, but we want all of the cash up front because you might just suddenly not answer the phone anymore or we might not see you again. I think that it creates a lot of uncertainty around this Chinese project and the Chinese market all around. Bad news for agents um, who, who can no longer use the threat of uh, their player having a, a big payday in, uh, in, in China if they can't offer that to try and get a new deal for their, their player with their club. And you've been looking at some of the world of agents, well, the, wor the murky world of agents, some, some payments um, made to young players this week, or the families of young players. Yeah, so I've spent quite a bit of time looking at around this issue, um, which we, we published in the Times this week. I mean, um, one, there's one thing which with A.D. Ward, the former agent of Raheem Sterling, um, the FA have confirmed he's under investigation for, for allegedly paying £10,000 to the the parent of a of a youth player before he is legally allowed to do so under FA rules, um, so that you have to be in your 16th year. And more generally, um, uh, separate agents um, trying to bypass the rules by setting up companies for parents of young players and then paying them to be scouts, which is basically a front. I mean, I think it's the tip of the iceberg. I think it's happening everywhere. Yeah, it was a really interesting story, uh, Ziggs. Uh, the, 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 there's obviously thousands of, of kids in these youth programmes and, and, you know, parents probably believe the hype. You know, you, you, you're watching telly and you think your 10-year-old your or 8-year-old or whatever is going to be the next big thing. And that, that kind of creates a real pressurised environment. And it doesn't seem um, to be policed very well. It seems like it's a bit of a um, Wild West scenario. Yes, they've caught, potentially caught A.D. Ward, who I assume denies all these allegations. But there's probably a whole field of this going on behind the scenes as clubs battle each other to, to, to sign um, the best young talent. And agents also try and scoop them up before they become too expensive. What, what do you know about how, how much this is being policed, Martin? Yes, I think you're right, Tarek. I think it hasn't really been policed at all. Uh, I think it's quite difficult for the integrity investigators at the FA and, and other authorities to get the evidence because um, if the parents are paid, they, they usually keep their mouth shut because they're quite happy with it too. But um, I, I'm not sure there's the appetite really in football to uncover the problem because 
if it's so widespread, then it, you know, once you do once you do one person, then you have to sort of look further afield, perhaps. Well, in a previous episode, we discovered the controversy facing horse racing over the links to the Godolphin founder, Sheikh Mohammed. It's a matter still not resolved by the British Horse Racing Authorities, but they have been swift to act this week after a storm of controversy over the trainer Gordon Elliott being pictured on a dead horse. He originally came out with a pretty convoluted explanation, soon did apologise, and uh, now he's had a... 12-month ban imposed on him from racing with six of them suspended. Um, what did we make of how this story unfolded? Yeah, I think he, one of, it's a, a classic um, one where he was caught out, didn't know what to do, panicked, tried to bluster his way out of it, failed, then it bit the bullet and apologised and accepted he'd done wrong and now is paying the price. I mean, I, I think it a classic one and we should have just come out straight away and just said this is the kind of it's a very very stupid thing to have done um some some time ago um which it is and it's i mean some i mean some people have pointed have made the point that it, shouldn't we really be focusing on the number of horses that are actually dying in races and stuff like that rather than what what's the behavior of one trainer and and something like that and, and that actually this is a sport where lots of horses die all the time and Perhaps we should tackle that rather than looking at this one particular incident, which, although unsavoury, um, is, is 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 not suggesting any particular cruelty or anything like that. Remarkable comment from from Gordon Elliott, essentially saying he was walking, you know, along the paddocks and he had to take a phone call, and he absentmindedly um, sat on on a, on a horse that was recently deceased to take his call. Um, I, I don't know who would do that. You're, you're walking, your phone's ringing, and you think, right, I need to sit on this dead horse to take this phone call. It was absolutely bizarre. But anyway, um, yeah, 12-month um, ban for, for Gordon Elliott, and I guess some renewed focus and more negative um, focus on, on the horse racing industry, Rob. And one of his jockeys, Rob James, also pictured uh, on a dead horse this week when footage emerged of him. One of the story uh, to follow up from from last week's episode, we covered how the IOC did seem to quietly award the 2032 Olympics and Paralympics to Brisbane with very little um, open decision making on it. Now we've had some um, grievances we've had from we've had from Qatar, who certainly believe they still want to be part of the bidding. They're not giving up, which is uh, perhaps it's surprising they might be so outspoken. Yeah, they're not the only ones. I think the German, the German government, the German sports ministry, and there, there was a, a bid from uh, Germany mooted as well, um, describing the process as, as murky and non-transparent, and, and essentially they haven't been given a chance. And again, 11 years before time, what, what was the reason to do that? And again, it's typical kind of um, IOC land decisions taking place that sort of suit the management at the time. Well, it's been great chatting through uh, a lot of bidding stories again this weekend ifab yeah no it's um it's, it's been quite a fascinating week actually i'm looking forward to the week when nothing's happened and we then have to sort of invent things so far so good well if anyone's got any thoughts of things to talk about in a quiet week it's at sport unlocked on twitter sport pod at gmail.com and that's all we have time for today Thank you for listening once again and enjoy the sports viewing in the days ahead. 
And if you get a chance, please rate, review and subscribe to us on whichever platform you get your podcast from. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.